0: Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Okay, let's take our copy of the Word of God and turn to Hebrews, and we'll start a new chapter today, Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 1. The author writes, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness, clothed with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest But he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the day of his flesh, he offered up both prayer and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, now everyone is back to school, right? Isn't that great? Everyone's excited about that. You know, for me, one of the pluses about going back to school back when I went to school was it was one of the few times of the year that you got some new clothes. Back to school and, when was the other time? Christmas, that's when you got new clothes. However, my grandmother had a neighbor whose son was a little bit older than me, and so she would get hand-me-downs from that family, and then my grandmother would give them to me. So I was always getting some new clothes whenever we go to visit my grandparents. She would give me two brown bags, paper bags, full of secondhand clothes. And whenever we got those hand-me-down clothes, my dad would sing this old country song, secondhand shoes, secondhand clothes. They all call her secondhand Rose. They all think that she's really smart, but Rose don't have a secondhand. Anybody remember the song? It's just something up here singing. No. I didn't even know myself if that was a real country song, so I looked it up. And yes, lo and behold, it was. It was a secondhand song. Uh, recorded 1963 by Roy Drusky, no less. So somebody said, when are you gonna do some country music in your sermons? So there you go, I did a country <laughs> song. I'm taking requests now, you give them more. In the song, Rose is being made fun of because of her secondhand clothes. I suppose some people did find it embarrassing to have secondhand clothes. It never really bothered me when I was a kid. But you know, when you get into high school, you kinda get more brand conscious. So that's when I started using my part-time job money to buy clothes that my folks were not going to spend good money on, like Levi's jeans or Nikes. My junior year, we all were into acid wash, jean jackets, and jeans. Yeah, that was the look right there. If you had some acid wash, you were cool. So, in high school, secondhand clothes were no longer going to cut it because, as a teen, how you were clothed really affected your degree of attractiveness. So, you know, I've got to get some acid wash so I can look cool. Think that'll work today? Get some acid wash. Incidentally, somebody in the first service said, I pulled my acid wash out the other day. Still hasn't come back in style 30 years later. Still not, not attractive at all. So. The other week, we talked about how everyone ends up naked. Today, we're going to talk about how to be clothed, especially how spiritual leaders are to be clothed. So you're wondering about that title in the bulletin. Let's talk about Pastor Rob's wardrobe. Every high priest taken among men is appointed on behalf of the people and things pertaining to God in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin he could deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also clothed, the author says, clothed in weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for himself as well as for the people. Clothed in weakness. I thought that was an ironic phrase to use in describing the high priest and his clothing because no doubt Jews never equated the high priest and his clothing as being weak. Since the time of Moses, the specific garments that were worn exclusively by the high priest were called the holy garments. Moses first placed them on Aaron at the consecration of of, of Aaron as the high priest. In Leviticus chapter eight, it says, then he puts uh, then he put the tunic on Aaron and, and wrapped his waist with the sash and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and wrapped his waist with the artistic band of the ephod with which he fitted it to him. He then placed the breastplate on him, and in the breastplate was the Urim and the Thummim. He also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban as its front, he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, as just the Lord had commanded Moses." And Aaron wears these garments until his death, transferring them to his son, his successor Eliezer, moments before he died in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, the Lord says, take Aaron and his son Eliezer, bring him to Mount Hor, strip Aaron of his garments, put them on a sound Eliezer, so Aaron may be gathered to his people and he will die there. So Moses did as the Lord commanded and went to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And after Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on Eliezer, and then Aaron dies right there on the mountainside. And then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. All successive high priests are commanded to wear these clothes. So the high priest clothes are technically hand-me-downs, right? They keep handing them down. The fact that the garments are included in the instructions of the building of the temple and its furnishings indicates that they are not thought of as items belonging to the priest, rather as sacred equipment for the temple only to be used there. They are explicitly designated to be used when serving in the sanctuary. According to the law of Moses, Exodus 29, the holy garments Aaron shall be for his sons, after him, so they may be anointed and ordained in them. For every seven days, the one of his sons who is priest in his place shall put them on when he enters the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place. So these are the garments that they wore. Specifically, four garments in particular uh, are unlike any normal articles of clothing that the people wore. Their shape and design showed that they were not intended to provide protection from the elements or to fulfill any requirements for modesty. In addition to the fabric, they contain gold and precious stones. On three of these garments, words are inscribed. So each one of the high priest's garments is said to function in a specific way whenever the high priest enters the sanctuary wearing them. The functions of the high priest for their garments is, we'll start with the ephod, and that's kind of like an apron, that is worn, Uh, there's the robe and then there's the ephod and then there's the breastplate on top of that. So the uh, ephod had precious stones inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes. It's said to serve as the stones of reminder, to remind God of Israel and the same is true of the 12 stones that were on the breastplate. Thus by his very person, the high priest personifies the whole of the Israelite people before God standing in his presence. Then there's this breastplate, and particularly it says about the Urim and the Thummim connected to the breastplate. These two interesting stones enabled Aaron, each time he walked into the sanctuary, to inquire of God his specific will on a matter, and then the Urim and the Thummim were able to communicate the correct decision from God himself. Not sure how those work, but that's just what the scripture said they did. Now, the robe that he was wearing, that's that blue part that's down below the ephod, there was bells attached to that. And the reason for that is when he he, he was coming into the divine presence, it would alert the divine presence of Aaron's approaching so he wouldn't die. And if the bell stopped ringing while he was in there, they know, ooh, something has happened. And now we got to pull, pull the high priest out of there. Uh, that's how careful how serious it was to go into the presence of God. And then also this this diadem, this turban uh, on Aaron's head, it, it was said that it removed from God's presence any wrongdoing connected to Israel's offerings and to ensure by means of the inscription proclaiming that Israel's worship is holy to Yahweh, holy to the Lord, so that God would graciously Except the sacrifices. So when one considers the daily ritual acts involving the garments, it becomes clear that they are not viewed as clothing. They are called garments, technically, because he's wearing them, but only because the high priest is bearing them on his person. They transform the high priest when he wears them into a walking embodiment of the whole nation of Israel. So he's literally walking in here with all this imagery and it plays this indispensable role in the regular procession of worship that he's enacting on Israel's behalf. So a crude way of explaining it uh, is it's almost like when Iron Man puts on his suit, he becomes a superhero. He's really nothing without the Iron Man suit. So the high priest, when he puts on these special clothes, he then can do all of these sacred things on behalf of the people. So the clothes are not viewed as weak. Back in Jesus' day, the high priest was the most influential person in the land. Oh, sure, the Roman occupiers, they had their army, and King Herod had some governing authority. But the high priest was the person who served as mediator between God and man. So he would be the most revered individual before the people's eyes. He was the leader of the Sanhedrin, the religious council of 70 elders who spiritually led the nation of Israel in Jesus' time. This would make his words, his opinions, and his decrees most important, not viewed as weak. In Jesus' time, in the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, the high priest was no longer of the line of Aaron. Turns out that King Herod the Great and other Roman rulers after him saw this high priest position. That, that is far too important to just leave up to the chance of generational succession. So they discontinued the high priest serving for life rules. Instead, they installed and they dismissed high priest at will. It became a political appointment and the people who got the title were always from this upper class families who supported the ruling regime. What the author is talking about here in chapter five is how the high priest was supposed to function based on the law of Moses. He's supposed to be appointed on behalf of the people and things pertaining to God in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently and with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is clothed in weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sin for himself as well as the people. The high priest, the spiritual leader of Israel, ought to be the most aware of the weaknesses of the individual, the frailties of his own humanity. He ought to be most aware of the insufficiencies of his own goodness. The high priest's holiness and righteousness is weak and puny compared to the glory and the splendor of God. The holiness and the perfection of God outshines all else. He would know this about himself. And like the prophet Isaiah, as he comes into the Holy of Holies with those bells reminding him that he might die while he's in there and they'd have to pull him out, they start ringing. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips. It's a reality check of who he really is. My eyes have seen the King. We're going into the presence of the Lord of armies. The one who is close to God recognizes how weak he himself truly is. Like when you stand in front of the roaring ocean. Anybody go to the beach this summer? You stand in front of the ocean. Doesn't that make you feel small? It's like, man, this thing is so vast. Like if you go to the top of a mountain, anybody climb any mountains up there in Pennsylvania? You look over the, the vast landscape and you go, man, I'm so small compared to all this landscape before me. A spiritual leader does well to remember that he himself is not godly or important or astute, but rather in reality, he is very weak. Nowhere's near as good as he makes himself out to be. For many years, I've been dealing with this challenging dilemma that I want to reveal to you all today, big reveal today. I wanna take a moment and thank all the folks who shared their testimonies last Sunday. Most people expressed how nervous they were to stand up and talk in front of everyone, and yet they they said they felt like it was important to do so. They, they felt like God had given them something to say. And I absolutely agree with that feeling. I really do believe that the Holy Spirit was at work guiding everyone what, they wanted to, what he wanted them to share. I don't know if you caught it, but I, I noticed a running theme in the folks that shared in the first service. And the same, a different theme, but a, a similar theme in all the people that shared in the second service. So if God was supplying them with the material, why were they so nervous about standing up and speaking? Well, the nerves come with the territory when you do some public speaking, but it also illustrated something about the nature and the character of the folks who I asked to speak. It illustrated an attitude of humility. I don't know if I'm the best person to be up here. I'm not sure that I'm the right one to be speaking on this subject. Sue Nebula said in the first service, this is out of my comfort zone. She did not want to be up front and center. That was way out of her comfort zone. But since they were giving testimonies, they were the absolute best people to speak on the subject of how God has blessed me at Faith Bible Church. That was the assignment. Tell the people how God has blessed you. Only you can give your testimony. True, but who am I really? I'm not anyone particularly important. How will my testimony help anybody here today? And... That is often my very thoughts every week. Often I, too, wonder, why would anyone bother to show up here and listen to me preach? How is it that people actually think I should be the pastor? This is a dilemma that I face. And it is a paradox I've never completely settled in my own heart, but I've just chosen to live with this. I'm not really deserving of the position. I'm lacking in so many ways. I, I have deficient in many qualities. I, I feel like all the folks who shared last week I'm not anyone particularly important. How is my testimony really going to help anyone? Anyway. In December of 1996, a long time ago, Kevin, way back in the day, senior pastor at People's Church in Toronto, Nova Scotia, he resigned. And at that time, I was the 25-year-old youth assistant pastor. My middle son, Ricky, is turning 25 in a couple months. You look at Ricky, and that was me. In January of 1997, I was given the responsibility to be the acting pastor of the church of 250 to 300 people. The church housed and completely supported a kindergarten through 12th grade Christian school, had eight full-time staff, two part-time staff. We had an $80,000 missions budget. People's livelihoods were depending on me. And there I was in charge of it all, 25 years old. That was crazy. This was not something I ever expected to do. I just wanted to shoot teenagers with paintballs and coach high school basketball. I never expected to be preaching three sermons every week. And I would pray every week, Lord, you have got to help me. I am in over my head. Well, a couple months into that, March or April, the elders said, well, since you're pastor, we ought to get you ordained. So our church was affiliated with the AGC, the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. So the president came down from Ontario, upper Canada, they came all the way down from Toronto and they formed this ordination council with all these other ordained ministers in the area to interview me. Now these guys, they were the pastors of churches but these churches were much smaller than People's Church. People's was the largest AGC church in the Maritime Provinces of Canada, and these guys were like my dad's age and older. All of them had been in the ministry from like 12 to 30 years. A couple of those guys were actually sending, their, sending in their resumes, applying for the senior pastor position of the church. They wanted my job, which was fine with me because I wasn't even sure I was supposed to have it to begin with. But I could tell when they were talking to me that they didn't understand why the church had me as their pastor. And when they interviewed me for ordination, they really put me on that hot seat and fried me up. And one guy in particular, he took sport in making me look dumb. And to be honest, it really wasn't very hard to do that. My elder board was present for the interview and anyone in the church was invited to come and sit in on the interview and these guys chewed me up and then reported to the president of the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada and the entire elder board that I was not very impressive. They felt that I was a weak candidate and they had reservations. Well, I suppose one would have reservations about a 25-year-old I think you all would have reservations about that guy too. I mean, that's pretty wet behind the ears, eh? But the members of my church, the people that I had been trying to serve for the past three years, they pushed back on the council and they said, we see the Lord at work in Pastor Rob. We see God is doing something. Maybe he's not well-read and maybe he has a lot to learn, but we believe God has called him and we confirm that. Calling. So, with some grudging hesitation, the ordination committee agreed to recognize me and lay hands on me and publicly ordain me to the work of the gospel ministry. And then President Don Hamilton signed off on the certification. So, when I say stuff like, I often wonder why anyone would bother to show up to listen to me preach. How is it that people actually think I ought to be pastor? I'm not really deserving of this position. That's not me faking humility. That's me parroting the things that were communicated to me. It's what they said to me in front of my elder board and my friends, the people I was trying to minister to. Those older guys were not happy with me and they were resentful about giving me the green light. And what I remember feeling was very ashamed of myself through that process. I never told you that story before. I definitely did not bring that up uh, 15 years ago when I interviewed for this job. I didn't tell that one. (laughs) Of course, by that time I had 10 years experience and two master's degrees, so by the world standard I had grown, but most of the times I just still feel like that 25 year old. And that's my dilemma. I hold a position I do a job that I never feel worthy of. And that's okay. To be honest, I wanted encouragement. I really wanted some glowing words of recommendations. My my love language is words of affirmation. But what I needed was exactly what I got. The truth. It was true then, and it is still true today. I am clothed in weakness, and I would do well to never forget that for a couple reasons. First Samuel chapter 2, verse number 3, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him acts are weighed. Proverbs says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And when we go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, it says, don't lay hands suddenly on anyone. You can't be a novice to be a pastor or a leader because he might become conceited. You can't be conceited to be a spiritual leader. I look around and I see people in leadership positions of all kinds, and it seems like humility is not expected at all of them. I mean, I don't know if you caught it, but when you tell 74 million voters that they are extremists and a clear present danger, when you think that you have the moral high ground and defend the soul of the nation while your opponents are the bad guys, not a lot of humility in that. I mean, if your approval rating is 40%, I don't think you should assume that you are the great uniter that you make yourself out to be. But that's consistent with all political leaders when they talk about their greatness, and how fantastic their administration is. Leaders are supposed to be the brightest and the best, and CEOs have to portray confidence, and military leaders have to depict strength, and entertainers are supposed to be charismatic. Preachers are supposed to be the ideal representation of virtue and goodness, the example of how to do it. After all, we are the ones who know the will of God. And there's my dilemma. I need to present myself with a sense of poise and competency. I'm supposed to be wise, prudent, respectable, and dignified. We want people to come to Faith Bible Church and conclude, yes, this church has good leadership. Oh, it is Holy Spirit controlled. Yeah, they're good people doing good work. I mean, pastors read the books and they go to the conferences and we're supposed to know how to build the church. But if I actually see myself as such, if I do, I'm not being completely honest. But on the other hand, if I come up here and constantly self-deprecate, you're going to think, wow, this guy really doesn't sound like he knows what he's doing. Uh, maybe we should get rid of McNutt and find someone who sounds like he knows something about how to lead a church. It's a very fine line to walk. You know? I want to be positive and confident about us and Faith Bible Church and what God is doing here. And yet, I want to be real about the weaknesses Mine and yours. We need to be a safe space where people can come and confess their failures and admit their sins and reveal their brokenness. Be honest about being ignorant and misguided. And that we need to learn. Because that's one of the whole points of coming, isn't it? To study and learn. To be Corrected and reproved to be instructed in righteousness. I'm supposed to do this, but according to this passage, I'll be more effective when I understand that I myself am clothed in weakness. We are, we all are, ignorant and misguided. Sinful and need of a sacrifice to atone for our sinfulness. Verse 4, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when is called by God, even as Aaron was. That's how it was supposed to be, according to the law. Aaron was called by God, and all in his family would have been born into this position by the will of God. But as I said earlier, in the author's time, the honor of high priest was grasped by people who felt entitled to it, and they used it to elevate themselves, sort of like how people use fame nowadays Politicians and athletes and popular people, they make millions of dollars off of being famous. Ooh, a big name. Let's listen to what they have to say. Their fame and their popularity means that they will draw a crowd. Well, they must be worthy of honor since so many people listen to them. But what happens when the Ravi Zacharias's, the Mark Driscoe's, the Bill Hybels, the big name famous Christians weaknesses are exposed? And the glory is taken back. But see, they never deserved the glory to begin with, now did they? They were always clothed in weakness. Who told them they weren't? Well, maybe contemporary Christian culture did. Contemporary Christian culture, which acts a lot like contemporary American culture. Maybe we would do better if we just instead acted like Jesus. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become the high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I begotten you. Just as it said in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God appointed Jesus son of man. The whole amazing plan was preordained. Jesus' birth, life, ministry, and death were all characterized by humility. He was God incarnate, yet born as a lowly human baby, completely dependent on people who he created to provide for him, care for him, feed him, change him, teach him how to walk and talk. He came from the throne room of God in heaven to very poor people, thus clothed in weakness. And this was all the plan of God. God chose this way, and Jesus submitted to that path. And when he finally did start his ministry, and he got to show his power, he didn't get to be the high priest. They didn't take him to Jerusalem and anoint him and give him the ephod and all that stuff and and make him the head of the Sanhedrin. Well, they probably should have, but they didn't. He didn't glorify himself to become the high priest, the author says. But God said, hey, you're a priest. Not from Aaron. but from the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk more about Melchizedek another time because it's a lot going on here later on that. I'll give you a little bit later on. Things Jesus, but then let's go to verse 7. In the day of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus pleaded for things. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he plead? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that prayer got answered, right? God's will got done. The cup didn't pass. And he had to suffer. And he went and hung on the cross. And he pleaded some things on the cross. He pleaded, Father, forgive them. And he represented this thief on the cross beside him. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he's acting as the mediator while he's literally the sacrifice. He declares, Father, into my hands. In your hands, I commend my spirits. The night before he declared, we'll do this one in a little bit. This is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In all of these prayers and declarations, he was heard, even when it says that he prayed loud cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. Well, he died, but he got saved from death, didn't he? he was resurrected again he was heard because of his devout behavior it says here like we learned in chapter 4 verse 15 in all things tempted as we yet without sin his piety his sinlessness it says although he was the son he learned obedience from the things which he suffered even though he was the son of god he was humble and obedient Remember at Easter time, John does a little scientific explanation of all of the passion, the suffering of Jesus, the humiliation he endured, betrayed, sold out by one of people in his inner circle, and then falsely accused before the whole nation, the mockings, the beatings, all he ever did was heal and help people, and then the crowds demanded the release of a murderer and his execution. Remember that, by the way, when someone says, if you disagree with the majority, you're an extremist. Just remember how many times the majority has been on the side of injustice and evil. You know, just food for thought. Jesus was declared innocent, yet condemned to death. I find no fault with him, but will execute him anyways. In Philippians, Paul says, becoming obedient unto death, even the death on the cross which was one of the most dragged out, excruciating deaths, including being stripped completely naked, beaten almost to death, nailed on a cross, and hanging him up, displaying him like a war trophy. We know the point of that back in the ancient times, don't we? It was for the ruling empire to flex on everyone, to show how powerful we are and how weak you people are. We can hang our dying enemies up and decorate the land with their desecrated bodies to illustrate how strong we are and how powerless you all are to stop us. So here's the creator of all hanging there completely beaten and humiliated. Because that's what was required to pay for the sin of mankind, a sacrifice had to be made. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. For eternal salvation to be purchased, an eternal sacrifice is necessary. Got that? For eternal salvation to be purchased, an eternal sacrifice is necessary. And since only God is eternal, only he could be the sacrifice. Think about this. Sin is powerful. Sin has been around for a long time, but sin is not eternal. God has no beginning and no end. God is bigger. God is greater than all of our sin. Didn't we sing about that? Right? grace of god greater than all of our sin which means something from him of him by him is as eternal as him and thus is greater jesus is the perfect sacrifice providing the eternal sacri- the sacrifice which purchased us eternal salvation i know we can't completely grasp the concept of eternal but just be grateful that his eternal sacrifice covers all our sins and all of our weaknesses. And one day, that weakness is coming off. And one day, we will be clothed in robes of righteousness and we will be glorified. Verse number 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the priest of the order of Melchizedek. I'm not gonna do much on that today, just to tell you that Melchizedek means... King of Righteousness, King of Righteousness. And that is who is reigning and that is where our inheritance is held and that is what we are going to inherit. His glory, his kingdom of righteousness and just like the prophet Isaiah said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. So he's going to hand his righteousness, his righteous robes down to us. And when he does, those will be some hand-me-downs you'll be glad to get. Amen? Amen. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We didn't even know you. We were lost and dead in our trespasses and sin. We had no concept of even what we needed. And yet you and your great love and your eternal power, you saw what we needed and you reached down and you made a way to give us this eternal salvation. And we give you all the glory and praise for that. Praying in Jesus' name.